Welcome to City Climate Innovation, a special Climate Talks podcast miniseries from the University of Melbourne and the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy, or GCOM. I'm your host, Ben Hanse, Head of Research and Innovation at the GCOM Global Secretariat. And my name is Marnie McGregor, Head of Strategic Communications and Advocacy with GCOM. Welcome, listeners. Today, we will be joined by guests directly from COP27, the UN Annual Climate Conference in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. In conversations with our guests today, Ben and I will be talking about networking, research, and innovation for cities. We hear from a range of experts that we caught up with on the floor of COP that are all working toward innovative climate solutions from a range of perspectives. Before introducing our guests, let's bring in GCOM Co-Managing Director Andy Deacon to talk about the latest on research and innovation at GCOM. Welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks, Mani. So you're back to provide our guests with a brief update on the latest research and innovation activities from GCOM and its partners. Keen to hear more. That's right, Mani, and it's a special one from the floor of COP27. First, the Working Group on Regional and Local Contributions has released the second edition of the Multilevel Climate Action Playbook. Building on last year's release in Glasgow, this edition dives into policies and enablers that can be leveraged at all levels of government, bringing in good practice from several partners in this space who are focused on boosting multi-level governance, including the European Commission, the UN Development and Environment Programs, World Resources Institute, and others. Second, the Urban Transitions Mission under Mission Innovation is moving forward with its initial cohort of cities who are accelerating the transition towards a net zero future. Together with our co-leads in the European Commission and JPI Urban Europe, and with support from a global innovation alliance of partners, we look to these cities leading the charge in the coming months and years as global demonstrators of the feasibility and impact of net zero pathways. And lastly, with COP comes the yearly launch of the GCOM aggregation report now counting more than 12,500 cities and local governments in an alliance representing more than 1 billion people, their impact, both current and future, only serves to strengthen the efforts of nations, businesses, and other sectors in the fight against climate change. But this is all just a teaser. More detail on all of this work is available on our website at globalcovenantofmayors.org, as are all of the other existing activities, partnerships and launches we're planning as part of COP27 this year, together with our alliance of partners. Thanks so much, Andy. I have absolutely no clue how you kept that all to just three succinct points, but that's the magic of your work. Turning to our guests now, we're, we're really thrilled to have with us today several partners who are bringing cities and local governments to the forefront of the solutions agenda at COP27 here in Egypt. Today, we'll hear from Masamba Tioye, Project Executive of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat, or UNFCCC, Global Innovation Hub. Yunus Arikan, Director of Global Advocacy at ICLE World Secretariat. Helen Watts, Senior Director for Global Partnerships at Student Energy. Sheila Patel, founder and director of the Society for Promotion of Area Resource Centers, or SPARC, and Anna Reynolds, Lord Mayor of Hobart, Australia.
Welcome to the show, Masamba. Thank you. For the last few years, you have focused your time on the UNFCCC's Global Innovation Hub. A very simple question to start. What is it? So the Global Innovation Hub is an initiative that has been launched by the UNFCCC Secretariat at COP26. We wanted to contribute in addressing two main issues. The first issue is the fact that innovation currently is mainly um, serving power, economic power and military power. And we saw that action needs to be undertaken so that we can contribute in enhancing the use of innovation to support people and planet. The second aspect is that when it is used to support sustainability, innovation is not all the time effective. So there was a need to develop an innovation framework that can contribute in enhancing the effectiveness of innovation when it is used to address climate. To solve this issue, we came up with mainly three elements. The first is the promotion of moonshot mindset. When sustainability target and objective are set, most of the time they are set based on what is perceived as possible. And this does not provide room for innovation. What we are promoting is to have more bold objective and target that are based on what is needed, the alignment with the climate and sustainability goal, and then the gap between what is needed and what is perceived as possible is exactly the driver of innovation. The second aspect is the fact that innovation focuses most of the time at the sectoral level because the way it is used currently is to maintain the current value chain. Same product, same processes, but then we improve them, for example, by reducing their carbon footprint. This is good, this has to be done, but it will not be enough. So this incremental change will not allow us to address the climate crisis and the sustainability crisis. For that purpose, we need to have more disruptive innovation, and we can have this more disruptive innovation by expanding the space for innovation to address the most transformative one by going back to the ultimate needs. The value chain are satisfying, and explore how innovation can be used to develop a new value chain that will satisfy the same ultimate need while being aligned with the climate and sustainability goal. So you've got sustainability at the core. One last question from, from me then. Why work on a hub now? What sets this apart from others? Yeah, so as I mentioned, three aspects. The fact that the innovations that we are promoting are those that help fill a gap between bold commitment and what is currently possible. The second thing is the focus really on the needs. By doing so, climate innovation is mainstream into sustainability innovation, and it's about how do we satisfy the need of people and do it in a way that is the most sustainable. And also, we are promoting integrated approach on the leverage point. It's not just about innovative technology. We need to have cluster of innovative solutions that are integrated 
and that will include innovative uh, technology, innovative policy instrument, innovative business model, innovative properties approach and social innovation. Now, what we are seeing currently is we have innovation hub on technology, innovation hub on policy, innovation hub on finance, and they are not talking to each other. So what we want to do is to use the Global Innovation Hub as a bridge to connect to all these different hubs and contribute in establishing a network of network that will support sustainability. One last question from my side. What's the role that you see cities playing in all of this in the hub? Very quick response. Cities are critical because they are focusing on people. They are close to their citizen. And what we are promoting is really a focus on the purpose, which is addressing the need of people. Anything else is just a means to get there. The purpose and the focus should be on people, and cities are focusing also on people. Masamba, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was uh, my pleasure. Eunice, thank you so much for joining us once again on the Climate Talks podcast. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. So, for years, you and custodians ICLE have championed the cause for local governments and municipal authorities, or LGMA as we call it. How does research and innovation feature in the multi-level climate action pavilion this year? So, let's remember how we have reached to this point in time. When the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015, one of the first implementation steps was the IPCC, discussing about a report on cities, thanks to our dear friend Deborah Roberts, and, and now who is leading the IPCC. 2016 onwards, we have developed an agenda in IPCC, and, and now it's evolving. Uh, and this is shaping our also work on the second phase of the Paris Agreement now, which is the, the Glasgow Climate Pact, which says multi-level action to be implemented. And the connection is that this year, for the first time, we are launching an initiative on a uh, holistic approach to cities, which is with the presidency, and there will be the first ever climate and urbanization ministerial. This all gives us the evidence that nations are much more eager to work with the cities and they need more evidence-based documentation. In fact, this uh, meeting will also conclude uh, when IPCC's sixth assessment report will be resulted uh, and then this will be preparing the next seventh assessment report with a special report on cities. So if COP27 ends up with such a strong agenda, I think that gives us the chance that the implementation of this phase will be much more stronger. And, and the pavilion's role is that once we see the official announcement of the AR6 summary for urban policymakers on the UN pavilion, we will have a special session in the pavilion on the 16th of November where we will end up with the additional agenda, which is the one that is not necessarily by the nations but all the cities. Uh, so we are very happy this is hosted in our home of cities and regions. And more importantly, we will also explore because the, the work will not finish in thermal shade. There is especially next year going on for the global stock take. We have committed already that the global stock take will also receive feedback from the local level. So our goal is that the outcome of this AR6 and all these products should be the, preparing the base for the local stock takes in the year ahead. This, I think, is making the concrete evidence that 
the science and policies hand in hand together. And I think the fact that in the blue zone, cities have their own space as a pavilion is also giving the chance that they can speak more freely and they can be more ambitious in terms of what they want to do. Fantastic, Yunus. Thank you so much. One last question for me. You mentioned this is the home of cities and regions, right? What are one or two of the gaps that you see cities and regions facing in this struggle for multi-level governance? And where do you see some of those solutions or maybe some of those barriers being taken down? Again, let me take from the, the history. <laughs> On the way to Copenhagen, there was this proposal that the, the United Nations should recognize, engage and empower cities. So we get the recognition in 2015 Paris Agreement. We are, with the Glasgow Climate Pact, we get the engagement, multi-level collaboration. And the remaining one is empowerment. Empowerment means that, yes, we have ambitious leaders. We really want to do more, but financially, technically, and resource-wise, especially human resource-wise, it's, it's beyond the current capacity of the cities. And that's why, whenever there's a disaster hitting the cities, even though it's north and south, they have to have support from their national and global funds. We are not saying that stealing, but in fact, we're getting the fair share. We are generating the urban GDP of the world, but we are not equipped to do even more because uh, it is still a municipal budget issue. The municipal budgets do not reflect the realities of the, 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 the action that has to be and that can be taken. And that all connects to the discussion that those initiatives that we have been seeing, race to zeros, surge, these initiatives cannot solve the financial problem. The financial problem should be solved with much higher decision-making process, which is the restructuring of the, the, the global finance architecture, as we have been hearing with Scottish government, Barbados Prime Minister here in the pavilion, that loss and damage agenda, when it comes to the space, it is a complete rethinking of our financial architecture, I think capacity building and finance, which has been always been a traditional discussion, this becomes even more urgent now. But the good news, there are more resources in terms of initiatives, partnerships that are addressing this. And so I think that is the good news that it's not anymore accepted. Everyone wants to find solutions and the solutions help each other. That will be the key message from Sharm El Sheikh that in the second phase of the Paris Agreement, everybody's aware it is the multi-level action that delivers these challenges in the most effective way. And I think this will be very clear in the next couple of days ahead uh, and hopefully by the end of Sharm El Sheikh. Yunus, thank you for joining us today. And thank you, moreover, for your longtime leadership of the LGMA constituency. My pleasure. I think our success story is making us even more motivated to do more. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Helen. Thank you so much for having me. Throughout the year, we've heard youth step up to center stage once again. Activists, young professionals, and students included, all rightfully advocating for inclusion in broader climate decision-making. Student Energy is launching the full energy outlook at COP27 this year, which we're very excited about. Can you tell our listeners what to expect from this? And more importantly, how have young people have been involved in some of the collecting, analyzing, and delivering this great data? Absolutely, so the Global Youth Energy Outlook is a first-of-its-kind data-gathering effort and was actually led by a team of young people around the world. It surveyed nearly 42,000 young people in 129 countries and gathered youth perspectives on climate change and energy. So we've been at Student Energy have been leading this project for the past two years alongside 12 regional coordinators and we're now launching the full report at COP27 which includes a global insight section with key statistics and insights from the survey and dialogue process and it's followed by 10 regional chapters which dive much more deeply into the survey data 
and insights and discussions focused on that region. We've also had the report actually contextualize this data with youth profiles of young people who are actually on the ground leading climate and energy action. And we had the regional coordinators write their own forewords as well, which gives a bit of insight into their experience gathering data in their region and a bit more context for the energy system in their region being unique. And some of the insights that we've heard, I mean, of one message that came out super strongly is that governments need to be creating the enabling environment for climate and clean energy action. Young people who filled out the survey and participated in dialogues identified government policy and willpower as the biggest barrier in the energy transition. And an overwhelming majority of youth, over 82% of them, said that they would actually vote for a candidate, a political candidate, based on their position on a sustainable energy transition. So it's clear that these values are very much embedded in the youth psyche and we don't see that going away anytime soon. I think just more pressure on our leaders and governments to really commit to following through on commitments that have been made um, so that we can see real action happening on the ground. Such insightful outcomes from that data. So what's next for the Energy Outlook? Keen to hear what the next steps are. So we're really hoping that the Global Youth Energy Outlook will bolster the efforts of young people who have already been leading on these climate and energy solutions in their communities because there just hasn't been this kind of data aggregated in this way before about what young people are really, really calling for. So we're hoping that the Global Youth Energy Outlook will act as this kind of data-backed advocacy tool that young people can then take and use to advocate to their governments and companies in the energy sector. And then on the flip side, we hope that governments and companies will use the Global Youth Energy Outlook as a tool to better understand youth perspectives on energy and as a starting point to meaningfully consider young people in their internal strategies, their funding commitments, and their climate plans. Tools and advocacy, exactly what we need, it sounds like. Thanks so much, Helen, for joining us today, and uh, great work on all the outlook, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Sheila, welcome to the show. Hi. This year, together with your organizations, Spark and Slum Dwellers International, you launched the Roof Over Our Heads campaign. Can you tell our listeners a little more about its aims and the urban research and innovation gaps that it attempts to tackle? First and foremost, it's an old wine in a new bottle. Poor people all over the world design, construct, and finance their own homes. And in the past, they've been doing it to survive issues like eviction, of being remaining invisible in cities, and do not draw attention to themselves. And usually, it's a survival structure. Climate change is forcing them to change that. Because too much wind, too much rain, too much sun, extreme weather is destroying the habitability of these homes. And therefore, within the pocketbook that they have, they need to find smart solutions that will equip them to deal with this new unexpected, unanticipated, and quite frightening future. So roof over our head in an imagery in every language is security. You, know, you say, I have a roof over my head. Every language, that means I have something that protects me. So what we are looking at is trying to inverse the logic of how Everything related to habitat is addressed where poor people are concerned. Somebody sitting globally, nationally, or in the city decides their presence there is legitimate or not. Well, first of all, excuse me, you don't have a choice. And what demographers are projecting 
is that another billion and a half people will come into cities in the next 10 years as climate refugees. You don't need any special research to figure out where they're going to go. So the reality is that if we start today by removing this challenge of are you legal, illegal, the fact is you've lived here for four generations, you have served the city. In COVID, upper class people could not have survived if poor people didn't give them all the services despite the hazards of getting COVID when they left the home. We're trying to look at ways by which we do several things. First of all, we acknowledge that poor women need to make informed choices and those informed choices need to involve them from the beginning to the end. The second thing is we believe that people who design structures, people who produce building materials and people who do construction all of them have to interact with these women to produce the new normal construction, design, material and financing so that at the least they can explore this process incrementally. At best, they can rebuild their homes. But we're not just talking about the house. We're talking about its energy consumption, its access to water, sanitation and sewer systems, amenities and services that we hope our city leaders, our mayors and our governments will begin to accommodate and bring into what we call the climate shield of protection. So we do away with this old colonial system that informal settlements are illegal, they shouldn't be there, which is political, to planning instruments and standards that have allowed and permitted cities to do away with not providing basic amenities to 30 to 60% of their citizens and to bring in a new culture of design, material, finance that produces not only self-help that is more robust but brings into universities, into the private businesses of construction and this whole industry a new understanding that this is also a market. It's an invisible market, but it is a market. And if you quantify it globally, it's a huge market. This is the process behind it. We have designed it in a way where we say every lab will have a group of very strongly committed women's collectives in neighborhoods that want to seek the solution. We want them to be long-term players who start with their own homes but become champions of this process and tell others because the real secret of how transformation occurs in informal settlements is people need to see the solution to understand its impact to copy it. So we want to do as many so-called mini-labs in as many locations that represent the different climatic permutation combinations, uh, dangerous situations like living next to the river or the ocean, or dealing with mudslides or cyclones, or all these kind of things, to bring in this new knowledge, this new science that has to blend with what people can afford, 
what people can do themselves, what they can commission others to do, so that we have a new culture of inclusion that isn't just rhetorical. It's practical, it's real, and it has the capacity to quantify that this investment is made by very poor people. We don't calculate what it costs poor people to build a house, to protect it, and to upgrade it. I want to challenge somebody in your innovation lab to do these calculations for me because it will be a big number. We want to see it as a contribution to the national GDP, which is invisible today. And so we're looking for partnerships, alliances that do a range of things. And sometimes we know that the partners that can come to us, we have no idea what they will do or how they will do. But we hope that we can trigger their imagination to say, oh, I can do something. There's a lot of ambition in there, Sheila, yeah. and you already mentioned quite a few of the partners that you would look to work with. As you start to roll out the campaign and work with these labs of women, of leaders in communities, where would you actually look to start? If you had to prioritize the partners you would work with, who would those be? So, as usual, when you work in informal settlements, there are no silver bullets. There are many. So we're looking for people who, for instance, energy is very important. New building materials that are robust are important. New designs are important because you have to have a fit-for-purpose design in this process in the very modest space. Things. We, knew, we need new planning instruments that will convince governments and international aid agencies to look at how much you save by doing things on time. And we need a lot of political will, a lot of buy-in from a range of communities, including the whole financial industry that is happy to provide microcredit for small businesses, but hasn't looked at the habitat space in a really serious way. Even today, half of the loans that are taken in microcredit for business are actually spent on housing, because if you don't have a house, your business doesn't work. So things like that. But the whole idea is we want people to come in passionately to learn, to contribute, and to take back something that makes their contribution worthwhile even to themselves. This is not charity. This is a give and take. We think that we can produce amazing innovations that are good for lots of other reasons too. Amazing. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. So when you have people who listen to this and want to help, you're going to direct them to me. Absolutely, will do. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast, Lord Mayor Reynolds. Let me first start by congratulating you on a successful re-election campaign. We're thrilled to be able to continue working with your team to advance city climate action. Thanks, Mani. 
As mayor and GCOM board member, can you briefly speak to us today about the importance of Hobart specifically, learning from peer local governments and other sectors of society to tackle the climate crisis with innovative solutions? It is so important to learn from the work that others have been through, the experiences they've been to. I mean, every city is different and you know, just because a city succeeded with a program or failed with a program isn't the only consideration we would take before implementing a mitigation program or an adaptation program, but certainly the learnings from other cities does really help us design our projects. We're not a massive city, so when you don't have dozens of staff to roll out climate change mitigation projects, you really do have to take advantage of partnerships and learning from other cities and building, uh, ideally even doing things as multiple cities working together and sharing staff and getting something scaled up. So there's, yeah, really, really good work that can be done if we work together. In that context, on the floor here today in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27, what do you think some of the learnings have been and what do you think you could sort of take away from your, your time here this week? Well, it was really important to learn all about the multi-level action agenda. That That's a very strong and consistent message from a whole range of local government organisations and individual mayors that are here. I think everybody, even though we're all very different cities, we're very different places, we've got very different cultures, a lot of us share a very similar experience of wanting to be better recognised by our national governments in particular and for them to see that they really need local governments to help them implement uh, emission reductions and, and to do that without local government, without working with local government, they are actually missing out on many, many emission reductions that could be achieved much sooner if they could have some more formal engagement with local government. So it was surprising and positive in a way that that was such a common message and it really reaffirmed my understanding of how we, we at the international level need to do a lot more to push that message and to get much more formal recognition of local government in the international treaty and just give countries a nudge and ensure that they're actually more formally doing that work. Because some national governments are excellent and see the potential and are clearly recognise the value of local government action, but other nations will need the nudge that comes from having a, something about this in the international treaty. That's so important. Our multi-level governance message has been resonating, I think, and, and that's great to hear. It's been really great having you on the ground with us here in Egypt this week and very much appreciate all the things that Hobart is doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you to our guests, Masamba Tioye, Yunus Arikan, Helen Watts, Sheila Patel, and Anna Reynolds, and of course to our listeners for joining us today. I'm your host, Ben Hanse, and I acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri Warung peoples of the Kulin Nation. And I'm Marnie McGregor. You've been listening to the City Climate Innovation Podcast Series produced by Kaisa Lundbury, Greta Robinstone, Marnie McGregor, Melania Ciccone, and Ben Chandler. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music, taken from their album, Only One Way to Head. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss an episode. And you can also follow us on Twitter, 
at Mayors for Climate and at Network Cities and at MCF Uni Middle. Thanks for listening and take care, everyone. <laughs>